this is Big Books and Bold Ideas. It's a show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. What you're about to hear is true mostly, or is it? In fact, how much really is true? Shannon Gibney calls her new book a speculative memoir. It's the story of her childhood as the mixed-race adopted daughter of white parents. It's also the story of her relationship on and off again with her biological mother, who named her Erin, and the quest for her father. She writes in the prologue, What follows are other ways to tell the stories of Shannon and Erin, the known and the unknown, truth and speculation, to awaken the sleepers, to call forth the living, the dead, and those residing elsewhere. Shannon Gibney's new book is titled The Girl I Am, Was, and Never Will Be, and she joins us in the studio. Welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. Always great to talk to you, Carrie. Thanks for having me. You'll understand this. Uh, I'm not sure our readers know what to do with a speculative memoir, so (laughs) I really think it's worth giving some context to this. And let me ask you this first. Mm -hmm. Is there a reason this form of storytelling works for your life in a way that a more straightforward memoir wouldn't have? Yeah, actually, um, I never wanted to write a memoir when I was Mm -hmm. like a straight memoir when I was going through my search and reunion with Patricia, my birth mother, when I was 19. And, you know, as the relationship sort of developed um, into my 20s, people would always, when they would hear my stories of it, say, oh, you should write about this. And my response was just sort of, I never really wanted to because I felt like it was, I guess, a kind of packaging (laughs) of my experience for non-adopted people in a way that felt very uncomfortable to me. Mm -hmm. And so if I was going to ever write about these experiences of being an adoptee, of trying to find pieces of your story, pieces of various uh, kin, family, uh, whatever words you use to sort of I guess, embrace the holes (laughs) that are throughout inevitably um, our stories that it it was going to have to be a different kind of form and a different kind of book. And so I started, I started sort of having, I don't know if they're dreams or (laughs) what they are, but something with my subconscious where I started, you know, to wonder, you know, who was that girl, Erin Powers? I found out during my search when I was 19 that my name at birth that Patricia had given me was Erin Powers. And so I started to wonder who might I have been, of course, if I had grown up with her in Utica, New York, which is something that, you know, I mean, adoptees and I think people who have a discrete before and after that's that's marked by some kind of trauma, um, mm-hmm. you know, we always sort of live with these multiple timelines running. You know, what if I had been raised by my birth father? What if I I have birth siblings out there even now? All these things. And so how how to reconcile that and hold those realities in tandem? And also just the fact of the categories of fiction and nonfiction truth 
and speculation, you know, that the book really goes into through these these two primary timelines, of course, one of me, Shannon Gibney, growing up in 1985 in Ann Arbor, Michigan, with my white adoptive family, quote unquote, what really happened. And then the other primary timeline, which is Aaron Powers. Of course, again, the name I was given at birth, growing up with my white adoptive, uh, sorry, my white biological uh, birth mother, Patricia Powers, in in Utica, New York. And, um, and then, of course, I surround those primary narratives with documents uh, from my adoption, um, a lot of letters from my from Patricia that she wrote my white adoptive mom um, through the years, pictures, and then I have uh, I call them micro essays throughout as well on the absurdities of uh, the adoptee experience. So it's kind of a collage. And as I've been talking about the book, it's been out now for about three weeks, you know, this question of genre really comes up a lot, which I think is a productive question. And what I said recently at a event was, you know, the book doesn't fit because I don't fit. (laughs) So, yeah. Okay. So I have a, I have quite a few questions about what you've just said. First, um, you used a phrase, what really happened, quote unquote, yeah, which is what truly happened in your life. But why do you qualify it with quote unquote? Well, I mean, I think also in the life of people like adoptees, like, you know, we're, we're told certain stories and then we come to find out, well, no, that's actually not what happened at all. And and I want to also be clear that everybody in families, everybody's in a family in some kind of way, right? I mean, this this generally happens, but it's just that with adoptees, it's like it happens way more. We have way more holes. We have way less information. We have way less stories um, about our, uh, you know, some people call them first, first families, biological families, home communities, you know, coming to us. And so, and there's just a lot more kind of subterfuge and um, I mean, sometimes even like outright lies and all kinds of, you know, it's just this big knot. I always say, if you can have any kind of imagination to think about what it might be like to be in a situation where honestly, the, the best option available to you in that moment is to relinquish your child I mean, that's really intense. You know, there's got to be like a knot of all kinds of familial, social and other forces just pressing down on you. So as then that child ages, you know, and as those that birth parents age, it's not like those that knot gets suddenly like untied. It actually just gets pulled in some ways tighter. Right. Those issues don't go away. And so, you know, as we age as adoptees and we try to find out more about sort of the circumstances of our birth, perhaps, um, who our our, um, biological family and parents are, all those things are just sort of this knotty mess that continually is kind of evolving and changing. And, And there's no real clear definition of like, this really happened, that really happened. And per your question, I guess, like, in terms of my own life, 
I mean, we also know that memory is, is, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a very fluid thing. Um, Flexible. Yes. Mm. And so even when you go back and, re- I mean, I think they've done studies, even when you go back and remember something that mm. happened, it's like you're probably not remembering <laughs> it. Yeah, exactly. you're changing it mm-hmm. as you retrieve it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't want to forget this because you just said that there are often lies and subterfuge in the story that accompanies the adoption story. Yes. And I I think you write in the book at one point that the storytelling of adoptions is often fantastical. Is that the word you used? Yeah. There's a lot of, yeah, yeah. Because there, and I think you're suggesting, because we want to believe in some kind of romanticized version. Yes. We, not just the adoptee, not just the family, but a lot of us who have not had this experience want there to be some kind of romanticized story that accompanies it. Is that? Tell me a little bit about why you believe that and, and what that means for how we understand adoption. That is something that... <laughs> irritates the majority of adoptees that I know, (laughs) you know, just Mm -hmm. sort of like the dominant narratives of adoption that just get replayed over and over and over again. And so, you know, it's like these cycles where it'll be like, you know, there's like a New York Times story about this white adoptive family, you know, that went all the way to um, Ethiopia, you know, to get their child and they had all these problems with, you know, um, the government there and they came back though with their baby and the baby's thriving and, you know, all these things, right? And that, and that's kind of the end of the story, right? We don't really hear anything about the family that relinquished the child. We don't, we certainly don't hear about, uh, you know, the child, let's say, uh, years on when they're an adult, um, in their twenties. I mean, that's also something that adoptees talk about is like in these adoption stories, we're almost always infantilized. Um, And the literature of adoption, the literature in particular of transracial adoption has been dominated by white adoptive parents who don't actually reveal that they are white adoptive parents. And so for me, and in the book, I talk about this. I don't think I tell this particular story. But, you know, I I mean, I just remember watching, you know, various TV shows and and reading things, uh, books and whatnot. And it's like, anytime that there might be a transracial adoptee in the story, it, it just felt off. It just something felt like this. No, this is not how it is. This is not my experience. Um, and I think in the book, I call it a kind of epistemological violence, you know? Mm, um, yeah. yeah. So that that's how a lot of adoptees experience a, a lot of these, uh, these narratives. And it, and it makes sense, right? I mean, if you have, if you're queer, for example, and most of the stories being written about you uh, or about queer people are, you know, by, by straight people, there's probably going to be, you know, some problems. Yeah. So, so it's the idea of the story ends happily ever after, the moment that mostly the white adoptive parents show up and sweep the child off to a better life. Yes. Yeah. And, and there's a lot missing yes. from that. Yes. Yeah. That's definitely true. The other thing, you used the phrase um, when I was asking you about why speculative memoir writing really worked for your story, you said 
because there's a lot of holes and you knew there were there were holes and you develop what I thought was just this really interesting um, tool for working this into your memoir, which is you create a wormhole. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And I mean, I I saw that as it's necessary, this wormhole, and I love the part, we'll get to this a little later, but where you actually kind of discover the machine that you can get into the wormhole (laughs) with. Um, But I think you use this tool or this technique to open up the idea of this parallel life mm-hmm. that you're speculating about. Is that right? Yes. Tell me how you how, tell me how you thought about yes. this. Well, and this is where, you know, it gets kind of hard, I think, um, and maybe even a little embarrassing for people who are writers and work with language to be like, just admit that we don't we don't always know what we're doing. <laughs> and we, you know, we, and certainly we don't have the language always, um, to understand what we're doing. I mean, I, I think particularly with creative writing, you know, there's, there's certain points at which it's like, yeah, okay, I have to know, um, this character's motivation. I need to know at a certain point the character's arc, but there's also these things where it's like, if I understand this too much, then there's no point in me writing it. Um, <laughs> because it's just mm-hmm. not going to be interesting to me. It's not going to be interesting. And if it's not interesting to me as a writer, it's not going to be interesting to the reader. And so the wormhole, I mean, I just have to be completely honest. Like, I don't completely still understand that consciously um, in a way that I think <laughs> my my subconscious does. Um, as you know, Carrie, we've had many conversations and I identify strongly as a as a black nerd or blurred, as mm-hmm, some people call yeah. it. Yes, <laughs> yes. And I say in the book, too, you know, I grew up, I'm a child of the 80s, right? So I grew up on a steady diet of like star, various Star Treks and um, certainly Star Wars was like, I mean, a huge part of my psyche and consciousness and everything and you know flash gordon and like the old Battlestar galactic like all the stuff that you can think of that has like the worst um special effects ever like i (laughs) i grew up i grew up on all of that and you know just loved it you know and so this was actually like a really i think fun part of the book like the book is really it's got a lot of heaviness to it because Mm -hmm. it is like this this story of kind of intergenerational loss um and also i mean of course gain right because you you do see all the things that i i i do shannon and aaron do do gain um uh, from the various ways that their families are formed and 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 changed and grafted and all the things but um but yeah i think the wormhole just emerged uh from from my subconsciousness as this uh way um, to theorize, um, you know, trying to not get too annoyingly academic here, but, you know, to sort of theorize the, this experience of our lives uh, as adoptees where, you know, you, yeah, you, you cross over in certain places and you're li- sort of like you can see that other timeline going by. So there's right. one point at which, right. you know, um, and I think we're going to read the excerpt at some point where, where, where Shannon actually meets Patricia for the first time um, as a 19-year-old. And she actually sees Aaron, uh, like, in the neighborhood uh, driving Mm -hmm. away, right? (laughs) Because I – and I don't – again, I don't fully understand that, but I I kind of think it's, like, this point of – this – you know, it's the point – uh, the generative point, right? The point, Patricia is the point at which they both come into being, you know, and then there's these other points, you know, Shannon as 
uh, I think she's like 10, where um, she's playing in the woods behind mm-hmm. her, their house in Ann Arbor and, um, and with her little brother. And they see the wormhole appears. And at a later time, it appears again. And she actually sees her birth father there. And, you know, I, <laughs> I know people have like spoilers. This isn't really like, I don't think like a spoiler type of book, you know, but at the no. end. No, because no. it is recursive and it, it goes around. But at the end of the book, I mean, she, she goes. And and it goes actually to another section in the middle of the book where where Shannon, as a 10-year-old, actually gets to meet her birth father, which I never got to do. But she gets mm. to do. And so does Aaron. You're listening to Shannon Gibney on Big Books and Bold Ideas. I'm Carrie Miller. It's the Friday Book Show. And we're talking about – you can hear us talking about the form that Shannon has used for this memoir. It is not a straight-ahead Memoir. It is speculative memoir, and we've spent some time defining that and what it has meant for Shannon and why she employed the freedom, I'd say, to use this form for telling the story of her life and the possibility of the other parallel life. The new book is titled The Girl I Am Was and Never Will Be. One last question about this. Um, I wondered as I got pretty deep into the book, if this element of fiction that you that you used was also not just to share this, not just to be able to tell this story with readers, but to also make part of your life as broad as that is acceptable to yourself. Do you know what I'm asking? I not know. just to answer a question. Yes, I know exactly what you're saying. Like, I mean, I think think for adoptees, it's like, I mean, it's a real question. Like, what is our real life, right? Mm -hmm, Like, what mm -hmm. is – and perhaps in some ways, like, the fiction is the real life. Like, what other people Uh would would think of as as the fiction, right? Like, and and what people would think of as real is, you know, not not necessarily that way. So, I mean, I I just – I think – that definitely the book is asking <laughs> those kinds of, of of questions for sure. So, how many how many uh, I guess answers, or did you did you have you know moments where you could come to terms with a lot of what you didn't know and perhaps didn't understand? I mean. Did this book allow you to do that, or did you finish with perhaps as much, I don't know, unsettledness mm. as you went into it with? This book was so fun to write. You know, the book before this was uh, Dream Country, which, of course, is mm-hmm. like, you know, I mean, this huge tapestry. It's 200 years and five points of view. And, you know, it's uh, this Liberian and Liberian-American family. And it's it's really – that book is really about investigating the, the chasm between uh, African-Americans and continental Africans through this one particular example of uh, – Liberians and Liberian Americans. And so, you know, I, I'm not Liberian. I had to do like a ton of research, you know, being a transracial adoptee and knowing how much it sucks to have people like misrepresent you on the page. Like I just, it took me 20 years, I mean, on and off. Right. And so, and I never really felt like just, um, playful with it kind of thing Mm -hmm. in the way that I felt playful with this. I mean, 
I mean, I, I went through multiple drafts. My my editor and I sort of like, you know, okay, we think, you know, okay, I thought it was done. This and that. No, it's got this other level of these micro essays. No, <laughs> let's put in this and that. You know, like there was there was a lot of revision. There was a lot of you know changes and whatever. But it really just kind of poured out of me mm-hmm. in a way that just felt really good. Um, and I wrote a lot of it in the pandemic too. And so I think it was like uh, also a really good way for me to sort of not get away from that, but just sort of like experience it in a different way. And and so, no, I mean, I feel like in terms of what I want to say about the experience of being an adoptee and about how our culture um, really doesn't understand the, the, you know, like any aspect of it, whether it's like from the adoptee's perspective, uh, whether it's from the uh, point of view of the the biological family, whether it's from the point of view of the the quote unquote home community that the child is being taken from, perhaps the adoptive family, and particularly the white adoptive family, like that that's the one area that our our culture claims to know. I mean, I think that as I've we've talked about earlier like there's there's a lot of there's a lot of romance around that that I don't think really mm. aligns <laughs> with the experience mm. of uh you know uh a lot of a lot of those families so yeah i mean i i do feel like for example the experience that i got to have meeting quote unquote my birth father in the book which i will never have in my life and really i think digging into all the complexities of my birth mother's life based on, you know, what I knew of her and the the difficulties and and really how that would have been to to grow up with her as she she moved through that, right? And 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 this this person of Aaron, right? Like what kind of mark would that have made on her, right? In a in a very deep way to really sit with that was really healing. I mean, to read through the the, the um, letters that Patricia wrote to uh, to my mom, to my white adoptive mm-hmm. mom, like that definitely stirred up a lot of stuff. Like I hadn't seen those for years. And so oh, there was yeah. definitely moments where I was like, oh my God, like, I can't believe she said that. I can't believe she, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, definitely that those things came up, but Yeah. Where, by the way, where were those letters? My mother saved them all. I yeah, see. yeah. It was, it was, and I just said, you know, as I was going through, you know, uh, putting the book together, and I just said, you know, can you send me everything that you have? And she did without question, which was a big gift, big gift. Susan or Patricia? Sue, Susan, my mom. Susan, yeah. Mm. I, I don't want to miss this. In the afterword of the book, you include this group text. Yes, that's titled uh, Life on Planet Adoptee, and one of your friends, Sun Young Shin, am I pronouncing that? Yeah, Sun Young Shin, yes. Sun Young Shin. She writes, layers of lies and sadness, heartbreaking. So you've just kind of alluded to the idea that it, it part of, that you've accomplished what you wanted to do, I think, to bring us we who are not in this world bring us into what it really means to be adopted, to put a child up for adopt, uh, adoption. I mean, you know, given what what some of was being said in this group text, I wonder if, is there a correcting the record kind of element 
to what you've done here. <laughs> yes, Carrie, I think you're getting to the heart of the issue. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think. Tell me. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that was part of the reason why uh, we wanted to include the the group text at the end. Like between, it's between myself, uh, mixed black transracial adoptee, Sun Young Shin, who's I'm, I'm sure read, listeners, uh, you know, are familiar with her, her wonderful uh, writing uh, poet and across many different genres. And then Dr. Kimberly McKee, who's also a Korean adoptee. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, Kim and Sun Young are both Korean adoptees. And then Dr. Sarah Park Dolan, who is not an adoptee, uh, is Korean American, but uh, studies adoptee literature. The group text there really shows, I think, the terrain of intimacy that adoptees can get to very quickly because of the profound losses that we come into the world with, but which are very hard to quantify or even put into language. Like our Mm. own language resists it. You know, and so I always say that kind of something magical happens when adoptees get in a room together because mm-hmm. we because we we have these these places that they're not the same. They're not the same holes. Right. They're not the same stories exactly. But there's a kind of recognition that happens with other people when you're like, yes. You know what it's like when, for instance, as, you know, Kim and I have this little exchange in the the afterward, right, where she's just like, you know, my birth mom um, said that her grandmother said that she should abort me. And then she said, let's go to Costco. And, you know, and there's something called adoptee humor, right, which is like super black humor that other people just are like, oh, my God, that's not funny. And we're like, oh, really? (laughs) That's really funny to us because this is our life. (laughs) Like, welcome to our world. Right. And and then, you know, I say in the next, you know, uh, part of that text, like, yeah, that's exactly what my birth mother said. She said that she went to the abortion clinic because that's what she was going to do. And then she said, I spoke to her. Um, and told her that, you know, I wanted to, I needed to be here. And she said it was actually a shout, right? And so there's this kind of recognition, right, that that you can get at just very quickly uh, with other people um, who have, yeah, uh, been like products of, I think I say in that section, similar narrative fragments, right? Mm, you do. Yeah. 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 I, in fact, I, I thought I'd read just a, a few lines from this part. Um, and it's at the end of the book in the afterword. We make our way through and within our stories by creating a language of recognition. It is sharp and fragmented, anguished and sardonic, but it is something for an adoptee to be recognized, to have meaning reproduced in a casual turn of phrase rather than repeatedly misused or misunderstood. We go about our business on planet adoptee, Writing, reading, working, raising children, paying our bills. We no longer look for resolved narratives. Our language of fact and possibility weaving endlessly back and forth. Okay, that that kind of answers my question. I guess, <laughs> was I looking for the neat ending maybe? Like, it was cathartic and I resolved a lot of these questions. And you're telling me, this is, the, this is how we live yeah. with a lot of 
non-resolution yeah. of this. Right. But that can be actually a source of, I don't want to say comfort, but the, the connections that you get from that kind of recognition is a kind of community, is a kind of kinship, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It does. Yeah. yeah. You're listening to Shannon Gibney, and we're talking about her new memoir, The Girl I Am Was and Never Will Be, and I'm Carrie Miller. I, I thought we could fill in some of the outlines of your life. I, I know listeners' curiosity are building here. Well, where do I put this? Like, how do I understand uh, Shannon's real life here in all the dimensions of that? So how old were you when you were adopted by Susan and Jim Gibney? Again, in Michigan, yep, right? in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Okay. Yep. I was uh, about five months old. Okay. And how much did the Gibneys know about the circumstances of your birth and your parentage? I mean, they knew that my birth mother was Irish-American, and they knew that my birth father was African-American. Um, and I think they knew that I was born in the area. I was born at St. Joe's Hospital in Ypsilanti. And this was in uh, 1975. Yeah, I think that – and they knew that, you know, I was like a – I was a healthy infant, responsive, you know, all the all the things. So has your mother, Susan um, – has she ever told you about how they decided how much they were going to share with you and when? I mean, I think that's an interesting question, particularly for transracial adoptees, because, yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, we've always, you know, as opposed to I have I know some adoptees that are like same race adoptees and, and then they don't know necessarily that they were adopted. Like I, you know, when you're transracially adopted, it's like, it's clear to everybody, that, you know, which yeah. of these things is not like this. So I always knew, you know, my parents, um, I would, you know, I would ask them certain questions and, and there's a sheet of paper called non-identifying information, which is information that, adoption agencies can give to uh, adoptive uh, parents that basically tells you as much information as they can without revealing the identity of your your birth family. And so I I always had that. And that was about maybe a page and a half long. And so I remember that there were times where I would, you know, ask about certain things about my my birth parents and my mom would kind of get that out for me. Um, but it had all this information about my my white birth mother and it had almost nothing about my black birth father, which Why? was <laughs> um, I think because she was the one who relinquished me, as I understand it, as she told it to me. Um, you know, he died. I when I I um, did my search, I found out that he died as a result of complications he sustained in a high speed police chase in Palo Alto, California, when I was six. So, you know, I I since have, you know, I I actually got to speak with his father, my grandfather, when I was I think I was about, yeah, I think I was nineteen, nineteen or twenty. Mm-hmm. I, I I talked to him and and he died just a few years after that. So I'm I'm still very thankful for that. And then I've visited his a sister um, who lives in a suburb of Detroit and younger, younger brother and, you know, some other. So I, I've, I've filled in some of those, those gaps there. But I, I think, as I understand it, as she told it to me, you know, she told him about the pregnancy um, mm-hmm. and he wanted 
His response was, well, let's get married. And her response was, oh, my gosh, this would be the worst thing for this child. Like this – no, we're we're both like – I think she used the phrase lost souls. So as I understand it, like they were both, you know, using substances and, I mean, stuff like that. So, yeah, I just think it's a great question, Carrie. And I think that it has to birth, – birth fathers in adoption, to me, particularly – I'm just going to be honest, if they're black, if they're native, if they're, you know, of color. But to me, particularly if they're black or native, like they just sort of get erased. This is what I wondered about, Shannon, like whether there is just this assumption that they had their role. It's really minimal. Nobody cares. Yes. Yeah. You know, yeah. is that right? That's how that's how I feel. Huh. That's how a lot of other adoptees feel. And it's interesting. I just wrote this piece that was published in Today.com about some of these issues, particularly around what I feel is sort of like the erasure of the black side of my family by uh, what my friend Kim at the end of the book would call the adoption industrial complex. Mm, <laughs> and, yeah. um, and I, you know, so I, it's been out on social media for a few days. And I mean, I, I had this one woman, you know, respond to it like, I'm South Asian and black adoptee, and my parents always told me that I was part black, you know, that my mom was South Asian, but, like, nobody had any information about my black Mm. father. And I just Mm. met him after 36 years. And then I had uh, a a guy who identifies as native in Australia respond to it and was like, oh, I guess it's just the same around the world because Hmm. I can't find my father either, and no one cares. Like, and I was like, wow, "Wow, this is, I mean, yeah. So it's been very interesting, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's really problematic, yeah. You write a scene where uh, Patricia Powers has given birth to you, and she insists on seeing you, even though she knows she's going to be giving you up for adoption. And it is such a poignant scene, it occurred to me that it was really important for you to imagine that initial scene the way I don't think it happened, but you wanted it to happen. Yeah. I mean, just I think there's also a way in which I mean, this book was really, you know, there's uh, various parts that I held very carefully. And one of the parts that I held very carefully and, you know, continue to be nervous about in terms of now it being out in the world and its reception is, mm-hmm. you know, the portrayal of Patricia as a birth mother because, mm-hmm. you know, mothers who relinquish their children in our culture are really vilified. Um, and I I didn't want to perpetuate that. But I also knew, you know, my relationship with her was very complicated um, <laughs> by a lot of things, including race, as you, as you see in the book. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, but but I think part of sort of honoring the honoring that I wanted to do of her journey was to really again deeply sit with and imagine what would it be like to actually, you know, give birth to a child and then have to just give them up into the world. You know, I've I've had I've given birth three times. I have a a 13-year-old son and an 8-year-old daughter. And then I had a stillbirth at 41 and a half weeks where, you know, so uh, I lost the baby. Mm -hmm. But (laughs) I know where my daughter is. I know where she's buried. Mm -hmm. I know that is like a discreet ending, right? It's a different thing, I think, 
to have a child out in the world and you don't know where they are. You don't know who they are. You don't, you know, it's like a part of your arm that's just wandered off and is still moving, right? And so I I wanted with the book to not just, you know, again, with the limitations of language, oh, yeah, she gave up her child, right? Like this is sort of Mm. end of story. Right. Yeah. And it's like, no, (laughs) let's actually take the language and stretch that out. To what what does that actually mean for her as a human being in this moment? Can I do that? You know, I think that makes, uh, and this goes back to what we, we were talking about at the beginning, I think that makes people deeply uncomfortable to interrogate too much, right, mm-hmm. what it really meant to the woman who made that most difficult decision. Mm-hmm. I, I, I kind of feel like a lot of us don't want to know. No. She did the best thing for the child. The child's happy, romanticized version of child growing up. We just like to kind of forget what happened to the woman that had to make that decision. Right. And also the the emotional cost, you know. I mean, I, I, I just think, you know, so many women who uh, have have relinquished their children, you know, I mean, they have – mental health issues, they, mm-hmm. they have substance abuse issues, you know, because they're trying to self-medicate that, you know, I mean, the, it's not like the loss ends. It doesn't end. Yeah. Uh, there's a, so, so I'd like to ask you to read this excerpt. And it's a scene where you describe arriving at your birth mother's house. It's around Christmas. It's the first time you've met her. Your best friend, Bobby. Yay, Bobby <laughs> is with you. Yes. Loved her. Yes. I hope you're still in touch with oh, Bobby. She came out for the book launch. Yeah. Oh, that's so great. Yeah. She just seems great. She's amazing. Um, so would you it set, tell us a little more um, to set up the scene, and then if you'll read, if you'll read a bit from, from that part of the book. Yeah. So this is uh, the first time that Shannon, myself, is meeting Patricia Powers, my, my birth mom, and... We have been communicating for, I think, about three months, uh, talking on the phone, maybe biweekly, and then um, exchanging letters. And so I have driven out to Utica, New York from Ann Arbor, Michigan, with my best friend, as you say, Bobby, who I I grew up with. And um, the idea is that I'm going to stay with Patricia and her, her partner, Josephine, for a few days and and meet the the entire uh, Powers family in that time and and Bobby's going wow. to uh, stay with a, a boyfriend. So this is the first time <laughs> that I I meet her. Okay. I stand in front of a simple oak door, a Christmas wreath decorated with holly and red ribbon, and a wood carving of children on a sled hangs in the middle. My heart thwacking like a hammer in my chest. I raise my right hand and knock three times. Once I do, Bobby is beside me, standing tall as always, hands clasped behind her back. She is nervous too, I realize. The door flies open abruptly, and then she is there. An average-sized white woman with short blonde hair that stops just above her ears and bangs that have been curled specially and sprayed in place. Her nose is thin and long. I can see that I inherited it. Her eyes are cautious, which I expected. But I can also see that at one point they were easygoing, overflowing with wonder at the world. 
but life has done its work on her, and she is different now. Hi, I say. It feels idiotic, but it's what you say. Hi, she says, and her voice is low, gravelly. I have heard it on the phone these last few months, but somehow it didn't seem so heavy to me over the line. More than 20 years later, after she has died from something called anaplastic carcinoma, I will learn that she smokes two packs a day, but hides it from me the whole time we are in reunion. Now, however, not having much exposure to smoking or smokers, I don't make the connection. We made it, I say. The wind whips up around Bobby and me, and I shiver. Shannon Gibney reading from her new memoir, The Girl I Am Was and Never Will Be. Will you characterize what... You stayed with her for, was it four days? Three or four days? Three or four days, yes. Yes. What was it like? I mean, it was odd. Um, It was uh, beautiful, cathartic, disorienting. Um, It was so many things. I mean, this idea that, you know, what is a mother, right? Like she was my mother, but she was not my mother in so many Mm -hmm. ways. Um, More like a distant aunt, I guess. Um, But trying to discover what our connection was with each other you know, which you can only do superficially, you know, over a few days like that, but you have to start somewhere. And I I was very lucky. I've always been very lucky to have very close female friends uh, throughout my life. I think, I hope that that's another message that readers take from this book, too, that we often, just as human beings, you know, we're going to go through some some things, you know. But I think the book is also about the profound power of female friendship because even as I was going through, you know, uh, search and reunion and certainly meeting Patricia for the first time, I, I never felt alone. And that was oh. because I, I had my girlfriends with me, you know. Wow. And it's not like they had some sort of – knowledge that I I didn't have about, you know, how to proceed in this this messiness. They didn't. But they just loved me and were willing to be in it with me. So great to hear. Yeah. It, there's a there's a part in the initial experience of being in Patricia's house. I think you you end up sleeping for something like 12 or 18 hours or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 12 <laughs> hours. Kinda, yeah. Right, you let down your guard and and then you get up the next day how weird that must have felt (laughs) right all the stress and tension you've you've in some ways kind of put that to bed you have this long rest and then you wake and it's we're starting this all anew that's right i'm here Mm -hmm. i'm in my mother's house and there's this scene where um you're making i think small talk over breakfast and Patricia asks you what your parents, the Gibneys, think of this, and you say fine, and it doesn't sound like you really confide that your parents, the Gibneys, are they're excited, but they're also kind of hurt mm-hmm. about how excited you are. Mm-hmm. And then Patricia smiles ruefully, right, she says, you seem like a person who does what they need to do 
regardless of the consequences. <laughs> I was like that once too. Mm-hmm. Oh, that felt so, you know, my mother has probably said that to me a thousand times, right? Uh, in my life. And I just, that instant familiarity and recognition that she was signaling to you, mm-hmm. that must have been mm-hmm. confusing mm-hmm. and comforting. Mm-hmm. How'd you feel? Yeah, no, there were many moments <laughs> like that, right? Where it's just sort of like, okay, this is a little bit familiar, but I don't quite understand how, right? Um, yeah. and, and, and it's also, you know, that passage that you, you read, it's very, sh- it's very sharp. You know, she was a very mm-hmm. sharp person. You know, she wasn't, I mean, she could be funny or whatever, but I wouldn't describe her as warm. You know, I mean, I just think she had, it was, she had a hard life. I mean, she just, she did. And, um, and that was one of the consequences of it, I think. She's trying to connect with me <laughs> in that moment, right? Like, okay, I can, I can see this about you, this sort of like dogged determination, yeah. you know, that I had also maybe at, at, at the age that I was then. And, and, but then, you know, that phrase of like, you know, I was like that once too, sort of like is also, I feel like, um, not a warning, but, <laughs> but, but well, there's something in it that's like that, I feel like. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I see why you say not a warning, because I think she says, uh, you know, something like, I was once like that, too. And then I found out how bad the consequences mm-hmm. could be or something, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What was she saying to you, do you think? Oh, now we're really getting into it, Carrie. Um, I think. <laughs> I, oh, yes. Uh, yes, yes. I mean, I honestly feel like, and you can see this in the letters to uh, to my mom, that um, she's also, her narrative sort of of um, my life and, and, and what had happened uh, to me, like as a child at that point now, then, you know, going into adulthood at 19, um, I, I think she was trying to say, like, like, yes, there's certain questions you have to answer. There's certain things you need to investigate. But be careful because also these people love you, right? My adoptive family love, mm. you know, loves you and, like, um, they've really done right by, by you, you know? And, um, and there's this sort of thread i feel like emotionally through her letters that's very much like thanking my my parents for all that they have done for me that she felt like she could never do and so the that was part, that was a big part of the feeling that that exchange had for me at the time you know shannon i wondered if she constantly pulled back the part of her that wanted to do what mothers do. Mm-hmm. Advice, you know, the 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 warning. I mean, as you say, her letters, they seem to veer back and forth mm-hmm. between that and it sounds like some of your, you know, your experiences with her. Do you know what I'm asking? Yeah, no. Do you think she felt that? Yeah, I do think so, definitely. And and that was another source of of difficulty in our relationship, right? Because, you know, sometimes she would give me unsolicited advice, uh, you know, about jobs. As or, mothers do. Right? Yeah. yeah. And and just stuff that I just was like, 
you know, I mean, I never said it to her, but my response would be to pull back, right? Was just like, you're not my mom, though. Like, you don't know me, right? Like, that's not actually, oh, I always thought that you would, you know, you know, go into something more, you know, like social justice activism or something, you know. And it's like, well, but you don't know me, though. Like, you know, like, that's not my my mother would not say that, right? Like, because she knows she's raised me, for right? So it just... Um, because of all this trauma that, that she went through, right, and how she dealt with it, you know, I mean, this is what we do as human beings, right? Like, we sort of process our unresolved trauma on other people in our lives, right? And and that's that's really what it felt like at, at, at certain instances. And, and definitely, you know, even in that scene later on where it's like, you know, I'm trying to get and she's like, oh, be careful, it's hot. It's really, really hot, right? And, and just all these things that she's trying to kind of mother me in this really yeah. weird way that I, I, it just, it's not working, right? It's clearly not working. For me, it's not working. So when you began to think about how this memoir was going to come together, what, you know, what of what she said uh, kind of rang in your, in your mind? I mean, I say often because I really believe it. And also, I think it's so easy to forget um, that the most important thing um, for writers and artists is to always tell the truth, Um, no matter the cost. um, The truth we know is messy (laughs) and um, it's multifaceted. You know, people have different versions of what that's going to look like. But I think I always know, at least, when I'm skirting around the truth in my writing. And so for me, it really was this balance of like, okay, I have to tell my perspective of what it was like to be in relationship and out of relationship, you know, with, with this person. And at the same time, I need to try to really sit with all these other parts of her that I didn't know, you know, that preceded me in many ways that kind of made her that way, you know, Um, which is kind of the speculative part of it. So I just trying to balance those things and also honor my own unresolved feelings. You know, I have a lot of unresolved feelings about her. You know, and some of the things <laughs> that she we, did and we said. understand that. Yeah, I mean, it's very much alive. I mean, I don't want to present this as like, oh, I, I you know, it's fine now. No, you worked it out. No, it's over. No, yeah. it's not like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> which makes for a, for a super interesting memoir, Shannon. Thank you. Um, Shannon Gibney's memoir is called "The Girl I Am Was and Never Will Be." I love our conversations, Shannon. They are always. <laughs> unexpected and wide-ranging and wonderful so thank you thank you so much for having me carrie